Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Adeline Allen on the teaching power of the law in our lives. So anyway, this nurse reports, she said, in the wake of Roe falling, discussions with patients have gotten more difficult. Patients are more strongly voicing feelings like they're doing something that's wrong or illegal, or they're experiencing a larger amount of confusion about their decision to terminate because there's this bigger overarching idea of well, if the Supreme Court or the government says that this isn't legal, then I'm clearly doing something wrong. Adeline Allen, next. Law professor Adeline Allen says the months since the Dobbs U.S. Supreme Court decision which overturned Roe v. Wade shows how the law influences us in making decisions. She calls it the teaching power of the law, or as it's put in the title of her World Magazine opinions piece, Dobbs' legacy, Law's Pedagogy, A Drop in Abortions, shows the teaching function of the law at work. Adeline Allen teaches at Trinity Law School in Santa Ana, California. Adeline, tell us about the motivations which prompted you to write this piece. Well, I've been writing for World Magazine for a little bit now, and actually it was my my managing editor, Andrew Walker, who emailed me and said, Adeline, would you like to write about this? And he linked it to a New York Times piece saying that abortion is approximately down by 10,000, a little bit over. Uh, It's the first set of data out since Roe v. Wade was overturned under the Dobbs decision. And I I said, yes, normally it's the other way around. Normally I pitch him an idea and he says, yeah, yay or nay. But here, you know, it was somebody from World. He's actually a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he also does managing editing over at World. So anyway, yeah, it was his prompting. So I'm grateful for that. And you mentioned the New York Times piece uh, since the Dobbs decision back in June, I think June 24th. What what has happened regarding uh, abortion uh, the numbers, percentage? Right. So the Supreme Court says that uh, this is going back to the states. And I'm sure your listeners are, are well familiar with the battleground in the states. And uh, since since then, since Dobbs, uh, first set of data out, it's, it's hard to know, of course, but the, just approximation of how many abortions have not taken place. And it's just over 10,000, hmm. which is interesting because surely states like where I live, California, we're uh, California not only welcomes, almost actively invites, uh, maybe not almost does actively invite women to come over uh, from other states over here. To get abortions here um there's also women getting abortion uh through online pills but mm-hmm. even accounting for both of these abortion seems to be down by about ten thousand, and that's ten thousand babies being born since just Dobbs was out just you know a couple of months that's astounding these are of course as, as we know mm-hmm. real living breathing human beings. In fact, they have been human beings since inception in the womb, each one made in the very image and likeness of God. So that's that's astounding. These are, these are our neighbors and fellow citizens. And you start your piece in a very creative way, um, illustrative. Can, can you describe how you started and why you started that way? 
Yeah. Uh, sometimes we hear of abortion, something like, you know, 10,000 or 63 million American babies having been aborted uh, since 1973, all the way up to Dobbs. And the number is so huge. We have no idea what that actually means. But if we think of each baby becoming each adult, I think that's much more personal. We, we know babies, we know adults. Mm -hmm. So if we imagine, say, running into one of these now babies, but then maybe a young person or maybe an old person. And I don't know, you, you meet people in a, in a grocery store, so you start chatting or at the dog park, or you sit next to the person in an airplane, you start chatting. And sometimes stories come out and your jaw hits the floor. What if that story is, you know, I would have been aborted, but I was born just a couple of months after that Supreme Court decision. Uh, and my mom couldn't get an abortion in my in, in my home state. And it was just it was too hard or too costly or whatever it is to go to, say, California or to the state of Washington. And because of that, I was born, you know, and and uh, now my mom loves me or, or maybe I don't know my mom. I, you know, I was adopted, but I'm sure happy. I'm sure thankful that I get a chance at life that I'm alive. So I, I wanted I wanted that person uh, as not just an abstract idea, but as the rest of us are, we're embodied mm -hmm. beings. And uh, and then and then one thing just leads to another fun thing. Well, and then maybe we'll maybe I'll name her something. We will maybe we'll name her Grace, right? Unmerited gift, because that's that's what each person is—an unmerited gift of God. Each person is loved by God. Each person unique and unrepeatable. Mm -hmm. My guest today on His People is Adeline Allen, and she is Associate Professor of Law at Trinity Law School in Southern California. We're talking about a piece that she wrote very recently for World Opinions, Dobbs Legacy, Law's Pedagogy, A Drop in Abortion Shows the Teaching Function of the Law at Work. And you write uh, regarding that title, uh, Adeline, that there's a relationship between law and culture, that law typically is downstream from culture, but the reverse can also be true, that culture can be downstream from law. Can you help us to understand that? Uh, how, how can they both be true maybe in different circumstances? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think it's very familiar and, and certainly commonsensical for, for people to think that law is downstream from culture. So what we do in culture, uh, uh, the old, one of the old um, definitions of culture is what people make one feels ashamed of doing, for example. Mm. But what is good, what is not good in culture gets to be enshrined in law. And I mean, this is how law has functioned, certainly true of our uh, Western heritage, our common law that we got from England. That's certainly true. But uh, and, and that's that's commonly talked about, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's also true is culture is downstream from law. And what law does is Law, law is a teacher. Law has a pedagogical function. Law tells us what is certainly not right, what is wrong. And that makes people think, okay, I shouldn't do it because that's wrong. And uh, in certain subtle ways, since it's not so subtle, law teaches us what is right. And that makes people think it's right. Now, if, if, if people are listening to this, if we're, we're thinking, how could this thing, thing X, be downstream from Y and also the other way around, maybe it's best to change really um, the analogy. Maybe, and I'm here, I'm borrowing from Ryan T. Anderson, uh, and I heard this, um, he's written many, many places, um, and I heard this in a podcast interview of, of his, he was being interviewed by an author, and this was many years ago, and he said, maybe it's best to think of it as, 
the ocean and the sand on the beach meeting together. And there's a lot of current there in the middle as the two meet each other. Maybe that's a better way to think about how law and culture affect each other. And in terms of the our, our discussion about abortion and it being illegal in some states, the exact mm-hmm. number uh, may vary a bit, or it's it's, but it is illegal in in some states currently, and it may be illegal or partially legal. So that you would say that is where law is teaching, where people are or women are recognizing that, and it may be, in one sense, changing their mind or at least uh, giving them second second thoughts. Yeah, and if I may, maybe I'll just read uh, a little short snippet of a conversation. This is an anecdote that I mentioned in the article. It actually came from Slate, and I, I want to give that credit mm-hmm. to Slate, but I actually read it uh, in the First Things magazine. Rusty Reno, the editor-in-chief, was writing about this as a commentary, and it struck me. I, I don't think I've ever heard of uh, anything more clear than this with regard to the pedagogical function of the law. So anyway, here's a little snippet. And uh, this is now a nurse talking to your everyday ordinary American women who find themselves pregnant. And the nurse is in Illinois. She works at an abortion clinic. Now, the women that she's talking with come from Missouri. Missouri now has limited abortion because of the law. So anyway, this nurse reports, she said, in the wake of Roe falling, Discussions with patients have gotten more difficult. Patients are more strongly voicing feelings like they're doing something that's wrong or illegal, or they're experiencing a larger amount of confusion about their decision to terminate because there's this bigger overarching idea of, well, if the Supreme Court or the government says that this isn't legal, then I'm clearly doing something wrong. Hmm. We've started to see patients in absolute crisis. At the clinic, we hear over and over, Oh, it's illegal in my state. Oh, I can't do that. Patients are also dealing with a larger amount of indecision and internalized stigma. They're saying, oh, I don't want to murder my baby or statements that reference this larger discussion that we've all been hearing, end quote. And so I think you hear it from these women. If the law says I can't do this, there must be something wrong. I don't want to do something wrong. In fact, uh, I teach at a law school here in Southern California called Trinity Law School, and I get the first year law students. They're fun because they come to law school and they don't know what law school is like, aside from maybe some movies. Now, if you grew up in the 70s, you've you've seen the paper chase. My generation (laughs) saw Legally Blonde. So aside from these or some some lawyer movies or shows, they don't really know what goes on in law school. I get to (laughs) I get to be part of the team that shapes them. <laughs> I teach contract law, I can be dry. And so, you know, first day or first week, I normally come up with this, we call it hypo in law school, hypotheticals, right? So it's not true. This is really a test. We're gonna test test this idea. But I come up with the idea of, let's just say that I hire a sniper, a contract killer. I say, pick somebody uh, ridiculous and annoying in your life. You got somebody, sometimes I, I make them name the person, right? All right, so I pay this guy, right? We got a contract. It's uh, my signature, his signature. I paid. It's uh, And then he's about to pull the trigger. And he goes, I can't do it. I can't do it. The, the person is made in the image of God. I can't kill that person. I can't murder that person. And I look at the, the they're all waiting with bated breath. What happens next? I look at, I look at my students and I say, what if I take that contract killer to court? What if I say, your honor, I want to enforce this contract, right? 
breach of contract, mm-hmm. your honor. Right? Contract killer wouldn't kill, and I already paid. What do you think is going to happen? They all say, oh, you're going to lose your case. And I would say, why? And they say, without fail, Bill, happens every year. What I think they should say, if you were to ask first graders, what they would say is because murder is wrong. Mm-hmm. But what my students say without fail every year in unison is, well, because it's illegal. Illegal. So hmm. illegal. That's what they say every yeah. year. Obviously, every year I get a new batch of students. Now, in their minds, then, the illegality is tied to the wrongness of the action. But if you ask very little children, they would go straight to the wrongness, which I think really is the heart of it. Mm-hmm. I think law should then reflect what is right and what is wrong. What is right, what is good, right, should be encouraged in the law. And what is wrong, what is evil, we should forbidden a law or depending on the severity of the case we we, we got to make it so that the law doesn't encourage that would discourage that so anyway I, f- I find that really interesting that i mean this is your everyday americans going to law school saying it's illegal it must be wrong and so there there are lessons here obviously for believers for all of us about then the importance of our laws that it, it this concept applies to other current discussions about for example legalizing recreational drugs wouldn't it be kind of the same principle? Absolutely. Uh, drugs, our discussions about marijuana, our discussions about euthanasia, which some people, I think, aptly call it suicide by doctor, mm-hmm. killing by doctor. Our discussions about divorce. Uh, well, Reagan, right, in uh, in my home state in California, started the first unilateral divorce laws. Before mm-hmm. that, we didn't have that in the United States. And then it spread like wildfire. What's the expression? California sneezes and the United States gets a cold. Mm. Sorry, everybody <laughs> else in the United States. Uh, and now here we are. If divorce can happen so easily, and if the law lets that happen, it started messing with people's minds. And now it's the norm in, in terms of how people think about marriage. They always think there's a way out. Why? Because well, the law lets you. How different than how the law had been historically throughout our Judeo-Christian world, uh, it's not like there you couldn't be out, but it's the three A's, um, adultery, abuse, abandonment, then you could get a divorce. But they, they made that a very narrow narrow way to get there. And I think uh, rightfully so. But divorce, now here's another one. We, we've seen it since the 60s, how it's now created a new norm that's not good, that's not healthy. My guess is Adeline Allen, Associate Professor of Law at Trinity Law School, and we're talking about a world opinions piece, Dobbs Legacy Laws Pedagogy, a drop in abortion shows the teaching function of the law at work, and of course that's what she does. She, uh, Adeline teaches law. And so in this case, Adeline, Dobbs, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the law, interestingly enough, is helping uh, a bit to plow in our culture what believers have been hoping and praying for, and that is uh, a a bit more of a culture of life. Absolutely. Uh, These are, just since Dobbs, right, if we're we're saying the estimate is about 10,000 babies having been born since, these are 10,000 real people. They're like, their claim to life is as strong as yours and mine. They are living, breathing, warm in the flesh type of people. And uh, our hearts grieve for all these other places, these states like where I live in California, Abortion stays the same or perhaps has increased because we're taking in women from other states, Mm -hmm. sometimes a lot of times with taxpayers' money. Uh, And so massive work remains in the states 
Uh, if, if we go back to culture absolutely affects law, Christians go forth and have good discussions with your neighbors, speaking the truth in love. Obviously be educated. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to be really familiar with the absolute best arguments in the pro-life side. Now, within the pro-life uh, side, there are lots of arguments and, and and let's be honest some of which are better than others and so we got to know i think what our neighbors say we got to know their fears their anxieties and have an answer for the hope that is within us right a ready answer that's where this ultimately all all points that's that's where the conviction to be pro-life is anchored in our faith in christ and in god's word absolutely now if our neighbor, if our coworker, whoever it is, is talking to us, hears that and says, well, there you go. We differ. You're a Christian. I'm not. So if you don't believe in abortion, you can't make me because I'm not a Christian. We also need to know how to speak to that person because the pro-life argument, there's a very good reason-based argument, right? They don't have to be a Christian to affirm the dignity of each human being. Now, how we define each human being and person, I think that's where we as Christians can shine brightly in the world because there are really good arguments. You don't have to be a Christian to believe that that baby is has absolutely full personhood, has a deep and inherent uh, equal dignity with the rest of us. I mean, he or she is fully human, right? With full personhood, with full dignity and full worth and value. Even if that, uh, even if our interlocutor doesn't believe that that person has been made in the image of God, well, okay. But let's talk about person and let's talk about why you or I matter. How is that different from that baby? And of course, you've just been discussing, as you write toward the end of your piece, that massive work which remains to persuade hearts and minds on the battleground of abortion in the states. Um, and that's what you've just described. That that's now the, uh, in a sense, the next step in this whole process. Yes, uh, some of the best pro-life scholars and intellectuals, and I, I think they're right about this, they say that actually, if you talk about abortion with most Americans, they know it's a baby. What they don't wanna do is think about it too deeply mm -hmm. because then they would be confronted with, oh, yes, then I shouldn't kill the baby. We shouldn't kill the baby. Or they might say, well, that's well and good when what happens to somebody else. Fine, don't, don't abort. But if it's me or my daughter or my mistress or whatever, right, then we've got a problem. So I think there's a lot of that, that work uh, in persuading hearts and minds is to have these conversations with them and know, know the very, very good arguments. And, uh, and not be, you know, not, not have our, uh, our backs pinned against the wall when they say things like, well, you're Jewish or you're Christian or uh, you're Mormon and I disagree with you because I'm not religious. Well, no, no, you and I are both reasoning beings and we can see the reasons for why that baby has full worth as a person, as a human being since the moment of inception. Science backs this up. Or if we can have a little fun with it, the science backs this up. Mm -hmm. Actually, the science is on our side. We know much more about fetal developments than ever before. Um, but if, if, if and, and sometimes we fall into this temptation of saying, well, listen, your baby could be the next president of the United States. Let's not say that, because what if the baby won't? Most, most babies won't. Right. What if the baby has Down syndrome? What if that baby will have low IQ? 
what if that baby will be ugly? What if, I mean, if we're, if we're measuring somebody's worth by ability or intelligence here, I'm quoting my, um, my, the great guru at Princeton, the great pro-life public intellectual, um, Robert P. George. Mm. I used to work there as a visiting fellow under him mm. and boy, has he done tremendous work? But he he brought up the point that if we're measuring it by, say, intellectual ability, then all the rest of humanity, including you and me, would have less worth than, say, Albert Einstein. If we're measuring it by athletic ability, we all have less worth and value than, say, Kobe Bryant's. No, no. What it is is the potential for a reason, right? It's not it's not that your reason is fully accessible right now as a two-week-old, say, baby in gestation in the womb, or uh, let's just say you're 91 years old and you've got dementia and Alzheimer's and you can't process that same way uh, intellectually, but you're still human because of that potential for a reason. Well, the piece is Dobbs Legacy, Laws, Pedagogy, A Drop in Abortion Shows the Teaching Function of the Law at Work. Uh, it was written by my guest today, Adeline Allen. She wrote it for World Opinion. She's an associate professor of law at Trinity Law School. And I know I have to let you go here in just a couple of minutes, Adeline. But it, it sounds like this this uh, teaching function of the law, it's perhaps not something that many of us have thought about before in the way that you've been explaining it, the way that you've written about it, but and as a professor of law, you'd be uh, one to comment on this. Is that a, is that a good reason for Christians to to consider going into the field, into fields like law, like politics, and even to remember to pray for for those that are in those fields? Oh yes, please do pray. Please do pray for lawyers, for law professors. Uh, my joke earlier about sneezing and the rest catching the cold. Another joke is uh, the law professors sneeze in the law reviews, the law review articles, and then uh, the rest of the world catches a cold because a lot of these ideas were incubated. I mean, you name it. If you talk about uh, uh, intersectionality, well, that was a law review piece many years ago. Hmm. And now the whole, the rest of the culture gets it. So please do. Yes, this is where a lot of things start. Uh, and so it matters that we call good, good and evil, evil. We call right, right and evil and the wrong, wrong and evil, evil. Uh, I mentioned the verse from prophet Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Uh, we think about, for example, Obergefell in 2015, that's the Supreme Court decision saying that, um, yeah, sure, same-sex marriage, go right ahead constitutionally. And how that's changed the quite a, a good bit of the norm in American life. Mm -hmm. And certainly, yes, law is a teacher. Uh, in fact, there's there's a bit about that, of course, um, on a different plane, as St. Paul talked about how law is our tutor. This is the, it's, I think there's a lot of parallels there with our laws in the United States, of course. Again, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not putting up our laws in the United States on a pedestal like it's the Torah, but with regard to the pedagogical function, oh boy, of course, strongly there. And, and you bring Isaiah 44 into this conversation just a, a bit uh, prior to the end of the article. What, what, what does uh, Isaiah chapter 44 have to say to, to this discussion? Yes. Oh, boy. I, I will not be able to improve on that very, very good article I linked in the uh, in my own article. But this was Isaiah 44. The Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah sees an idol maker making an idol out of wood. Uh, at the end, you know, he's using, if I remember correctly, the wood for other other things like baking or cooking. Uh, and uh, of course, the point is the Lord saying, how could... <laughs> 
how could that idol be your god if you made it yourself? I think mm -hmm. that's a sermon that many of us have heard. What I had not considered is uh, this article from a few years ago, also on First Things Magazine, by, I don't know how to pronounce his name, I hope I'm not butchering it, Ramey Brog, I think, um, a very good article. And he, he mentions that the culture basically flows out of the cult, the cult being the worship. Uh, the culture is what is left over from worship. Once you put it that way, a lot of things made a lot more sense in, in my mind. Think about, for example, high Christendom. If the cult was, if the worship was worshiping the triune God, check out the culture that came out of that. We've got the Sistine Chapel ceiling by um, Michelangelo. We've got Da Vinci. We've got Bach in Germany. We've got Shakespeare uh, with the imprints of the Book of Common Prayer and the Bible on that boy's soul growing up. And what came out of uh, what came out in his own arts, in his plays, in the poetry—that makes a whole lot of sense to me. What uh, the, the culture following, uh, flowing out of the cult, and so I, I I make a parallel argument that the law is not at all uh, like our worship of God, of course, but law does have this enshrining function. We lift up certain things as good in the law or worthy in the law, and that just like uh, the fruitful reading, I call it, from Isaiah 44, from first things, then what is what is being lifted up as worthy or good in the law does shape our thinking, does shape our norms, because we get to think, oh, what is lifted up as worthy or good in the law is a good thing. Um, if this is getting very abstract, maybe we can think of how our tax code is structured so that if people give um, giving to ministries or charities well you know what that gets to be as your deductible what it is is that encourages people to give to charities as donations so people think oh that's a good thing uh, otherwise why would i be encouraged by the irs to do that for example or by congress um and then what losses is bad we start thinking it's bad and you hear it in that snippet of conversations with uh with the with the women at the abortion clinic in illinois i mm. think well, just uh, just as we wrap up here, Adeline, uh, I like to ask people often when they're in different professions how God called them or led them into it. How did God call you into the legal profession and then uh, into teaching the law? I wanted to help people. So I was doing the very naive thing in college thinking, well, obviously then I want to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> right. I almost didn't have any other answer as to what helping people might look like as a Christian. Uh, that I just pick a very obvious one. Well, I took the MCAT. It was okay. And uh, actually, now, chalk it to, hmm, Adeline needs to grow in virtue. But I remember my sister at some point telling me, well, you're really good at arguing. You ought to consider law school. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good start. Yeah. Oh, man. It's not the best reason to go to law school, but uh, I took the LSAT and uh, it was a good score. I'm thankful to God for that mm -hmm. and uh, applied to a bunch of places. But uh, Regent University School of Law is a Christian law school in Virginia. Um, flew me out for a weekend to visit with the professors and on the campus. I absolutely loved them. So that's where I was for three years becoming a lawyer. And uh, and then I heard about a job opening in a little law school in Southern California called Trinity Law School. At that point, I was still a third-year law student, a 3L, as we call it. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, what do I have to lose? They're going to say, no, I'm a 3L. 
but they were doing uh, this, they, they had, I think, one or two openings and they wanted to make sure that anybody they hired were gonna, uh, was going to be good at teaching. So they came up with an unorthodox idea in terms of hiring law professors. They wanted all these candidates, including me, to teach a real live class with real law students and the deans and professors were going to be lined up in the back taking notes. Hmm. And so I did that. Um, a bunch of my friends and professors knew about it because I told them they were praying for me. It was a cool moment. I'm standing in front of a classroom feeling very out of place, uh, but really sensing the prayers of the saints. Uh, and and sen- I, I felt very encouraged by that. So long story short, that was it. Um, they liked me. They said, listen, you got you got the job contingent on passing the California bar, but no pressure. But anyway, here we are. So I, I hope to be doing good and faithful work for to, unto God. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to today's guest, Adeline Allen, professor of law at Trinity Law School in Santa Ana, California. You can read her piece, Dobbs Legacy, Law's Pedagogy, at wng.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Sarah Zilstra on biblical principles to guide us in honoring the Lord online. Just the the weirdest twist that the media that promises you connection actually isolates you um, and that it pulls you away from other people in your real life and that it the, the connections it's offering they're offering you is so shallow. It's not the same thing as sitting down and having coffee with someone. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.